Welcome to episode 13 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly. I am a contracts manager and freelance editor. And I'm your co-host, JJ. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today, we are going to be talking about money. Yay! <laughs> or maybe had... boo, depending on, right. on how starry-eyed you are about this thing. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be there's going to be a little bit of tempering of expectations um, in this podcast. But a lot of people, we've heard from a lot of people that they were really interested in hearing more about the financial aspect of publishing, about um, advances and royalties and all the other money things that uh, are involved in this business. And I know we didn't get to that in our previous contracts episode. So here we're going to dedicate this entire episode just to talking about money. Yeah, we called it getting mercenary. <laughs> Let's talk cold, hard cash. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so I have a lot of good information to share, and I'm really excited about this episode. Um, and I do not want the whole episode to be a downer, but I do want to open by saying that most writers have a day job. Myself included. Mm-hmm. <laughs> most writers do not make a living off of their writing if they're novelists. Um, if you have, you know, if you're a freelance writer and you're writing articles for different magazines and, and different things like that, you could amass enough work that perhaps that could be your living. I know lots of people who do that. But if we're talking strictly, you know, the publishing industry, writing books and earning your living off of that with no other income, that is incredibly, incredibly rare. And it does happen you know, there are sort of rags to riches stories. We can all think of authors who came out of nowhere and got huge six figure, six figure advances and, you know, multiple book deals. And now they're bestsellers and it's all wonderful for every success story like that. There are hundreds, if not thousands of other authors who are writing their books in the evenings, on weekends, on their downtime while they work at their other full-time job <laughs> because they just can't earn enough money at this stage in their career uh, to quit. And I, I also want to clarify a little bit. We're talking about traditional deals. Uh, I know a lot of writers who do self-publish and they make a pretty decent living doing that. Yes. But when we where Kelly and I are coming from is the traditional publishing background or legacy publishing or however else people want to refer to it. She and I have come from that sort of background. So that's what we know best. Uh, I'm getting published in a traditional deal. Kelly works in the contracts department. I was working in an editorial department in the big five. So this is what we are the most familiar with. But of course, as Kelly had mentioned before, there are other avenues of getting paid. Um, and self-publishing is a big one. Freelance writing is another one, but we're talking mm -hmm. about Mostly, this is going to be traditional deals for novels. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, there's there's nothing wrong with wanting a large advance or hoping for a large advance. Dream big. Or, yeah, of course, of course. Um, but, you know, but understand that those are the exceptions to the rule. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that 
you know, that, that, that in general is not, you know, most people do not get a humongous check when they sign their contract. (laughs) That's, that's not, uh, the way that things go. And you also have to remember that even if you get a large advance, let's say you get a six figure deal, that's not necessarily all it's cracked up to be either, because remember your agent, if you have one, is going to take 15% off the top of that. And then you still have to pay taxes on your advance that comes in. And then let's say, you know, you got this major advance on a proposal and haven't even written the book yet. And then it takes you a year to write the book and then a year to launch the book before it's published. And maybe it's two or three years before you actually, you know, during the time that that advance is covering. And all of a sudden that money doesn't stretch quite as far (laughs) as it might look as though it does. Yeah. A lot of that is because advances are broken out into multiple payments. It's never given to you all at once. Mm -hmm. As much as many writers would like it to be given to us all at once. Um, But it's always broken out. We'd mentioned this in previous podcasts. It's usually on signing and on delivery and acceptance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're going to talk about splits later too. So yeah, that's part of it. You don't get the money all up front. Um, So, you know, even if you get what looks on paper to be a large amount of money, that doesn't necessarily translate in the real world. <laughs> into and, and further in this podcast, we'll, we'll take some real numbers and not real numbers, but you know, like concrete numbers and try and illustrate what the money situation might look like for a hypothetical writer. Bear in mind, of course, that we are publishing people and don't math very well, even though <laughs> I'm Asian. But <laughs> <laughs> But we're, we're going to try and give you some examples of, mm-hmm. you know, a tip, not a typical advance, a advance, what the royalties would look like when right. you would see the money. We'll, we'll try and give you a concrete example. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what we're going to start off with today. Yeah. So, um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about too, before we really get into the nitty gritty of things is that. If you have an agent, agents are going to push for larger and larger advances. Of course, they want to try to get you the most money that they possibly can because that's, you know, part of why they're representing you is to make the best business deal possible. But also, advances are money up front that is guaranteed. Assuming that all the contractual obligations are met, your advance is non-refundable. You get to keep that money no matter what happens. Even if your book completely bombs and nobody buys a single copy, you get to keep your advance. There are ways that we talked about in our contracting podcast where things can happen and if your contract is canceled because uh, either party didn't meet up to their expectations of the contract or whatever else, then in certain situations you might be required to pay back your advance. But those are kind of the exceptions to the rule. That's if something goes wrong. In general, your advance is non-refundable. You get it up front and it's yours to keep whether or not your book earns out. So the more money that an agent can get for you up front, (laughs) the better because nobody can predict the sales life of a book. There have been books that have, you know, everyone has thought was going to be the next best thing. And then they completely bombed. And then there have been books that come from out of nowhere and just completely take off. And no matter what you think you might know or be able to predict 
about the publishing industry, there's always going to be things that are unknowable. And so your advance is money that you get upfront that you get to keep no matter what. And so agents yeah. will always try to push for the most money possible as kind of like an insurance policy. Yeah. And it's an advance is a, is your publisher's investment in your work. You know, if you invest in a company, you're going to, if you're an investor in a company, you know, you put up some capital for them to run their business. And ultimately in the future, you expect to be, you expect that to earn out and you get paid your money back with interest. That's kind of the same arrangement a publisher and, and a writer has. The advance is the investment in, in the book. And, you know, just as in any other business relationship, you're an investor in a company and that company goes bankrupt. That's a sunk cost. That investment mm-hmm. is gone. And, you know, as much as we don't want to think about books this way, it is a business as well. If the book bombs, you know what? That was the publisher's investment and they didn't make the right call. So that 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 is what it is. But as the author, you get to keep that money. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. And so that too, your advance is against royalties. It It is what it sounds like. It's an advance. The publisher is paying you the money that you haven't yet technically earned upfront as an investment. And then that goes against your royalties. When we talk about earning out your advance, that means that the royalties that you earn have equaled and surpassed your advance amount. Only when that happens, do you start seeing royalty checks. You'll Mm -hmm. get royalty statements that will tell you X number of books have sold in X formats, but you won't actually start seeing money or royalties until you have earned enough royalties that you've earned out your advance. The publisher has recouped the amount that they advanced you, and then you'll start getting your royalties back. So the larger advance you have, the more difficult it is to earn out because it means that you have to have more sales. And and just to say specifically, a royalty is a percentage of the profits the publisher receives. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll get into the specifics of royalties in a little bit, but on basic principle, it's not like, say, a writer gets a $10,000 advance. Once the book has sold $10,000 worth of book, of copies, you start seeing royalty checks. It doesn't work that way. No. The royalty is a percentage. It can vary anywhere from like seven and a half percent of list price to all the way up to 15%. But, you know, for example, you were going to do round numbers. It's a $10,000 advance and the royalty rate will make it a nice, even $10 or 10%. So it's $1 per book. And we'll say the list price is 10. So if we do 10, 10 and 10, $10,000 advance, 10% royalty rate, $10 list price at the bookstore so 10% of $10,000 is going to be a dollar per book. So you have to sell 10,000 copies to earn $10,000. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Again, remember, we are not math people. <laughs> but we're trying can, to make this easy. <laughs> yes, yes. And so if you need to sell that 10000 copies, if you're earning a dollar royalty on each copy, you need to sell 10000 to get your $10,000 advance back. The reason that it's important to earn out an advance is because it's one of the first thing that publishers will look at if you have had previous pub- publishing deals. They're going to look at your sales history. They're going to look to see how well your sales have been. Now, if you're going to a different publisher, they're not necessarily going to be able to know what your advance was, so they're just going to look 
you know, at the sales numbers and, and factor that into their own costs. But if you're trying to publish again with your existing publisher, one of the first things they're going to do is say, well, did this person earn out their advance or are we still trying to recoup money from their first book? Um, so it's, it's a good thing to earn out your advance, not only because then you start getting more money in the terms of royalties, but it makes you a more um, attractive investment for future book deals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a publisher wants to look at you as a good investment. They've, mm-hmm. You've made money for them before. And so if, you know, if you've made money for them before, of course they want to keep investing in you. And right. That's why earning out your advance is a sign of success. Also... For the author side, in the long run, it makes you more money if you earn out your advance. And I don't necessarily mean like, you know, the you get your advance and then you start getting royalty checks. Over time, getting a steady royalty check mm-hmm. is going to make you more money than getting a large amount up front. Yep. Longevity over kind of the short, quick burst onto the market. Yes. Steady sales are always the ideal. You want to be a strong backlist title. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) What is the the publishing prayer is may your book sell well out the gate and live forever on the backlist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So yeah, so that's kind of a general, like, what are advances? What do they do? Why do we get them? Why are they so much money or so little money or whatever? And now we're going to kind of drill down a little bit into some more nitty gritty stuff. And I wanted to start with something that people might've heard of. Uh, if you are really involved in the publishing community and you do things like read new deal announcements and things, then you'll probably have heard of this, or you might've even just heard people talk about it casually. And that's the publisher's marketplace deal key. Mm. This is those keywords that you hear thrown around that you don't really know what they mean, but people will talk about a recent sale and it will say such and such publishing house acquired so-and-so's debut novel in a very nice deal for blah, 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 blah. Or it could say instead of very nice deal, it could say significant deal or nice deal or whatever, you know, just these, these phrases that, that like, what does that mean? What, what does nice deal mean? What does good deal mean? What is everybody talking about? This is the publisher's marketplace deal key. It is not universally used for reasons that I'll talk about in a second, but it is widely used. Most agents and publishers will use this kind of language. Um, so it is, Each phrase represents a dollar amount range. So a nice deal is anywhere from $1 to $49,000. That's a pretty big discrepancy there. Mm. (laughs) A very nice deal is from $50,000 to $99,000. A good deal is $100,000 to $250,000. Significant deal is $251,000 to $499,000. And a major deal is $500,000 and up. And I guess it's kind of a way to talk about how much money a book has sold for in general terms, because again, those are wide ranges. Uh, You know, there's a very big difference between like a $6,000 advance and a $49,000 advance, but they're, they're both called nice deals. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not really illuminating so much in being able to figure out exactly how much 
money a book sold for. But it gives you a general ballpark. And the industry uses that information primarily to see, you know, what the marketplace is like, what their competitors are doing, what other books in similar genres are selling for to certain editors. Agents might look at it and say, you know, okay, I want to target these publishers because I'm noticing that they're trending on these larger advances or, you know, there's all kinds of things that you can do with that information. But you also have to recognize that it's, it's really broad, general information. And a lot of it is posturing. Mm-hmm. As somebody who's you know, gone back and forth with agents and stuff about, and when I was an editor, not as an author, about the certain, about language in PM, how you're going to announce it, where you're going to announce it. The P, the publisher's marketplace key, a lot of that is posturing. You know, you're not going to say, you kind of, you want to get hype going even at that early stage, even Mm -hmm. amongst your own colleagues. So, you know, you say, bought this two-book, you know, deal at auction, you know. You mentioned yep. things like that to be like, oh, I got this this property for, you know, a, you know, a lot of money, so we're going to try and make it big. It's a little bit peacocking. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is also why Publishers Market is kind of intentionally vague about it. I mean, I have my own feelings about the vagueness of that key, because I don't actually think this is useful <laughs> for anybody. Yeah. <laughs> at all. I mean, it would be actually really nice to see those concrete numbers. And if you are in in the process of buying books, you can generally guess about how much something went for because, you know, a major deal is $500,000 and up. And sometimes you can kind of guess if you were either in on the auction or if you made an offer, you know, you know what you put your money in for. So you can kind of guess who got it and why. And so those publishers marketplace announcements, you know, it's useful for writers. I think it is very useful for writers to, to have a subscription and to see those deals being made. But it, a lot of it is for publishing insiders. Um, yes. So don't don't put all your hopes on that. <laughs> no, no. And again, it. I mean, especially with the nice deal, that range is so vast. I mean, it's yeah. it's essentially meaningless. Yes. <laughs> um, I think that covers like three tax brackets and just yeah. one, <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. one, one tier of the key. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, but it, if you've heard those words thrown around before, I know that before I had started in publishing, I would hear things like that and just think, what does that mean? Like what? I don't know. Um, and so that's what it is. It's, you know, kind of a coded way to talk general numbers, um, you know, amongst polite company while kind of sort of tooting your own horn. And, you know, there's, mm. there's a lot that goes into it. Um, but in general, you know, that's what it is. If you ever wanted to know, those are the definitions of those terms. Um, and yeah, I kind of agree with JJ that I wish that we could do away with the shrouded mystery, but businesses have interests to protect, I guess. Yeah, I don't really know why that they do this. And I think it'd be useful for everyone, publishers included, to be completely transparent about their numbers. I don't I, I don't know why it, they, they hide those. Because honestly, if we were transparent about numbers, I think we would make far better business decisions. 
Well, I feel that way kind of across the board. You know, I wish yeah. that I wish that pay scales at every company in the country were public. I mm. wish anyone could just go look up what the person next to you is making because I yes, feel I like, agree. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's important information to know. And um so yeah, I completely agree with you 100% that I wish that we were more open about that. But as of right now, the publishers marketplace deal key is the tool being used most often. Uh, like I said, it's not universal. Some people do kind of opt out of that, but that's the the general the general tool that people use when announcing deals. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit more about actual advances. All right. We mentioned a little bit at the beginning, we talked about splits and about how you don't get all your advance money in one lump sum. I mean, maybe you do. I've seen contracts like that before where there's only one advance payment and it's all on publication or something. Um, or if it's really small. Yeah. If it's really small, you and know, you And by small, might get I mean it. like $500 kind of small. <laughs> right. I mean, and, and there are, you know, the deal key goes from one to 49000 yeah. I've never heard of a $1 advance, but I've heard of small advances and even no advance, which I'll talk about a little bit later. Yeah. Um, but, you know, generally your advance payment is split. Um, it can be split in a number of ways. Most of the time, it's something like two to five payments, usually. The two most common, which we touched on briefly in the contracts episode, so I won't belabor it too much, but you'll almost always have a payment due on signing. So you'll get a chunk of your advance right away when you sign the contract. You'll usually get another chunk on delivery and acceptance. Again, we talked about this in the contracting episode. It's not enough to just turn in your manuscript. It has to be formally accepted. But when it is, you would get another chunk. Sometimes there is an advance due on publication. Sometimes if there is more than one book, if you're doing a three-book contract, there would be a signing payment, uh, delivery and acceptance of book one, delivery and acceptance of book two, delivery and acceptance of book three. There's sometimes, if you've done something on a proposal, sometimes there's an advance payment due on the submission of like five chapters and a synopsis. So there can be a bunch of different triggers for your advance payment. But in general, whatever number you're quoted, if your agent calls you and says, we've got this offer for $10,000. You're not going to get $10,000 right away. No. You might get 2000 up front and then 4000 and then another 4000 you know, and that would be broken out that way. Um, and the bigger the advance, generally the more payments mm-hmm. it's, it will be broken up into. So, you know, for smaller advances, you know, it's generally half and half, half on signing, half on delivery and acceptance. But the sort of the bigger the the numbers get, then you start seeing it break, broken out into different payments. You know, on signing, delivery and acceptance of a proposal, outline or whatever, delivery and acceptance of the full manuscript, publication of hardcover, and then publication of paperback. Publication of book two hardcover, delivery and acceptance of book two. There's a lot. It can really be broken out into several different payments. Mm -hmm. And so even though, for example, say you sell a trilogy to a publisher, 
and it's a, a we'll say a good deal. We'll say it's a good deal, hundred thousand dollars for three books. And generally they're gonna say it's gonna be thirty three thousand three hundred thirty three dollars per book. Um and then they're so that's kind of per book you'll get probably get a good chunk of it on signing, as as much as your agent will will try and negotiate for you. But you're going to see that payment, that $100,000, broken out over four or five years. So $100,000 over four or five years, because we'll say that you're on a yearly publication schedule, and you're going to see payments, you know, every time your book publishes, that, you know, you'll see smaller and smaller amounts of your pub, of your advance being paid out to you over time. So even though this is the other reason why a lot of writers have day jobs, $100,000 for three books over five years, it's not a lot no, of money. That's only no. $20,000 per year. And that's not <laughs> counting the, the 50% commission that goes to your agent plus the third, you know, the the huge percentage you'll have to put away for taxes because you're a sole proprietor. We'll get further into money. If you guys are interested in that kind of a thing, that's like publishing 501. <laughs> <laughs> so we're still in publishing 201, you guys, so we don't have to go there. But, you know, that $100,000 over five years plus taxes and the and the commission you give your agent really doesn't turn out to be a lot of money. No. Mm-mm. So... <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, even even you know a good deal or what looks like a lot of money on paper, eh, not so much in reality. Sometimes, I mean, if you had a hundred thousand dollars for a single book deal and the book was already written and all you had to do was kick back while they published it, well, that's pretty sweet. <laughs> but you know, it all varies. It all depends on a lot of various circumstances. One of the things that can sweeten the pot a little bit for an author are bonus advances. Mm. So your regular advance is, you know, the amount of money that the publisher advances you against royalties for your book contract. And that, like we mentioned before, is nine times out of 10 non-refundable. That's your money to keep no matter what happens. Bonus advances are like a dangling carrot that publishers can put in front of you that are contingent upon performance of your book. Usually there are several different categories of bonus advances that can range in amounts. In general, they are for starred reviews and the publisher will specifically name in the contract the publications that a starred review would work from, you know, if your local journal run by your cousin's sister gives you a starred review, you're not going to get an extra $10,000. <laughs> it has to be one of yours, you know, like this, right. One of the yeah. Trey Kirkus. Yeah. School library journal, you know, and the publisher will list them out, which ones will qualify. But usually if you get a starred review, there would be a bonus. And I should stop right there and say, when I say usually I, that, I, that means when you're offered bonus advances. Bonus advances are not a standard part of every contract. These are things that sometimes um, publishers will extend if there's an auction and they want to kind of sweeten their position a little bit, or if they're a smaller publisher and they're not able to offer large advances up front that would maybe compete with some of the bigger publishing houses, but 
they're saying, hey, we really want to work with you. We're really going to invest a lot of personal time into growing your career. You know, if you stay with us, we can't give you more money than our initial offer, but we will put bonus advances into Mm -hmm. your contract. So bonus advances are not standard. They do not happen for everyone. They are not part of a normal template. Um, They are an extra perk that is given in certain situations. So starred review might be one. Another one would be a number of weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. And a number of weeks will be specified and they'll have to be consecutive weeks. (laughs) So usually it's about 10 to 12 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list consecutively would get you a bonus advance. Uh, Other ones are for the major prizes in your category. So if you're or your genre, rather. So if you are a YA writer, you're writing a YA book, it might be the Prince category. If you're doing picture books, it might be the Caldecott. Um, whatever the... For mysteries, it's the Edgar Award. Yep, the Edgar, the uh, Agatha, and the Anthony Awards are the uh, mystery ones. So Romance there's, has the Rita. There's, there's quite a few in, mm-hmm. in your genre or category, um, and they would also be specified in your contract. Yeah. And it's usually for... Um, shortlist and then a larger one if you actually win. And so those are usually the four typical bonus advances that would come up if bonus advances were going to be extended. So again, not standard, but a tool that publishers can use to entice the deal. Um, And they are used and employed in a variety of situations. I do know that a lot of smaller houses will use them because, you know, smaller independent publishers can't give you six-figure advances. They just can't afford it financially, no matter how much they want to, no matter how much they love your work. It's just not within their budget to do that. So if you're going with an independent publisher, and they're great, I I can't recommend them enough. All the ones that I know of are excellent. The people that work there are passionate and dedicated. But you have to know the advance isn't going to be the same as if one of the big five were putting in an offer on your book. And so bonus advances are a tool that those smaller houses can use to say, hey, we know that our, you know, our, our advances are not as large as they may be in some other places, but here's what we can do, you know, to kind of meet you more than halfway and show you that we really are passionate about your book and care about you and so on and so forth. Um, and they can be used in other situations as well. So the other thing that can happen with advances, so we've talked about regular advances and the splits, Advances go against royalties. We've talked about bonus advances and some of the situations in which they're used. There is the situation of having no advance, no money up front, but earning royalties. It is funny that this is almost, I I don't want to say non-existent because I know of quite a few places that still do do this kind of deal in their respectable, reputable places. Um, but publishing used to be no advance up front. It, it, I mean, it used advances were not like a thing <laughs> for a long time. You would earn your royalties and that was it. Or if they were, they were really small. Yeah, like very, very modest, modest amounts of money. And 
over time, advances became more um, universal, more people started requesting them, more publishing houses started granting them, and they got larger and larger and larger and larger to the point where they're now sometimes quite astronomical. But, you know, you'll hear about and read and and most advice columns or um, sources for writers will tell you that you should earn in advance, that that is the industry standard now. That is the industry standard now, but there are still some situations in which you would earn no advance, no money up front, and just move directly into royalties. Most of the time, those are nonfiction books in a very specific niche at very small houses with debut authors um, who have no existing platform. So like the publisher is taking a real gamble on this person because they don't have an existing platform on their subject matter, which would kind of generate or guarantee initial sales. And so instead the publisher would say, we're not going to give you any money up front, but here's your royalty escalators. You're going to start earning a royalty check from day one. The first book that you sell, you'll earn royalties on because we haven't advanced you any money. That is incredibly rare. It doesn't happen that often. Well, in the romance field, there are quite a few there are publishers that are, that are no advance or very small advance with the higher royalty rate. Uh, Typically, these are digital first titles, though, so they mm-hmm. don't have the same overhead. They can turn out the book much quicker. Uh, that is true. I forgot yeah. about that, about the romance industry, mm-hmm. but that is true. And digital first usually will not have an advance. The royalties are significantly higher on ebooks than they are on print. And in that case, the, the escalator is actually, if the book does well enough, that it warrants a print edition. So if it goes to print, then you will get a bonus of some kind. Right. So, you know, so digital first is a little bit different um, than the sort of traditional publishing that we're talking about, which is still print focused. Print is still king in traditional publishing. Uh, but digital first and prints, obviously overhead is going to be smaller. Production costs are going to be much smaller. I mean, you still have to pay your editor and your copy editor and the production people. But the digital first... You know, you can turn these around much quicker than you would with than with print. Uh, you don't. You have less lead time, and a, romance is a as a market and a, and a reading market is is actually quite fascinating. And its its readers have their own patterns of buying and reading books that is a little bit different from all the other markets. So we can't go into mar- further market breakdown in future episodes if you guys are interested in what we know about them and their reading and how their business comes down. Because I, I do realize that Publishing Crawl, we are very YA-focused. Um, that would be because the majority of us are YA authors. I was a YA editor. Um, even though my book is not being published as a YA title, it is being marketed as a crossover. So we are very YA-focused at Publishing Crawl, but that doesn't mean that other genres don't exist. Clearly, there are other genres, and they function a tiny bit differently. And romance, in particular, is a very huge segment of publishing with a very robust readership, and it can potentially make a lot of money. Um, I do have some friends who do edit romance, so maybe I can 
to them, friends who used to be in romance marketing before they became editors, so we can have them in. But in the meantime, I suggest you all go into Smart Bitches Trashy Books or read their blog. And they also have a podcast. So, do they have a podcast? You know, if I don't think I knew that. They do have a podcast. It's called Dear Bitches Smart Authors or DBSA. Nice. Uh, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to their podcast. I love it. It's fantastic. I love that. I love their <laughs> site, so I'm sure I'll love the podcast, too. too. Um, yeah, so that situation does still exist and it, it, I don't want you to think, you know, that that's an automatic scam. So if you are ever approached by an agent who wants to charge you a reading fee, that's an automatic scam. There is no, there is no situation ever without exception where an agent should charge you before you've earned any money. That's not a thing. It's not, that's a ripoff. Don't do it. But, um, no advance, but earning royalties that's not necessarily a scam. That's a legitimate part of the business and actually how the publishing model used to be uh, almost exclusively back in the day. <laughs> Although, and, and you can see most of these digital first imprints that do not have advances are actually part of the imprint. So, for example, we have Bloomsbury Spark. Bloomsbury is a traditional publisher that puts out print books, but Bloomsbury Spark is a digital first imprint. So you can, and I know Harlequin does similar things or, you know, other publishers, legacy publishers, big five publishers sometimes will have digital first imprints. So you will see that brand there. Um, some of the smaller ones can be a scam. So do your research, look at predators and editors, but there are plenty of reputable publishers that have no advance, uh, no advanced structure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You always want to make sure that the publisher that you're contracting with actually, you know, creates and produces books, <laughs> actually markets them, act actually does the things that it claims that it's going to do. Um, you want to look and see what other titles they've published. You want to, you know, you want to do your due diligence and make sure that the company itself is on the up and up for sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> Protect yourself always, always do your research always know what you're getting into. I know I've drilled it into your head that you should read your contract before you sign it. So I'm not worried about you there. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a thing. So that's kind of in general, the, the gist of advances. Advances are somewhat negotiable upfront. Most editors, when they make an offer, will leave a little bit of wiggle room. They won't, unless it's like an op, an auction or a bidding situation where you're competing against someone else and you're not going to have a second chance. You know, in that situation, you would bid your maximum amount of money for the project. But if you're just, you know, if you're the only person who's got to look at the project right now and you want to make a bid, most editors will bid slightly under their maximum amount to give themselves a little bit of wiggle room if the agent or the author comes back and says, hey, is there anything more that you can do? Sometimes not. Sometimes there's no, you know, the advance is what it is and it's going to stay that way and you have to take it or leave it. Sometimes you can move it a little bit. Um, that all needs to be done up front before the offer is accepted. You need to agree on a well, dollar amount. Okay. Well, okay. All right. Well, tell me. This this is going to be juicy. So explain <laughs> a little bit how advances are calculated. I know this is defined for a lot of people. And it is, in fact, a mystery to us who are out. 
But based on two, we previously in our submissions, the analysis of payment. This is our CF, our chief officer has drawn spreadsheets where you put in and the, the, you know, the numbers that you expect this title to sell. Now, that number is really pulled out of our butts and it's it's what we gut feel the size of the market is. It's based on research that we've done on, you know, BookScan, because that's the only resource we have access to on similar titles. So this PL, this is how we make our financial decisions. And generally we are going to be a little bit conservative at first, you know, when you know we're not gonna say, oh, this is gonna sell a hundred thousand copies out of the gate. We're obviously not gonna do that because you can't guarantee that. And we don't know that, but so we're going to be a little bit conservative on that number, but we'll say we expect this copy. We expect this book in the first year of its shelf life to sell 25,000 copies, which is a pretty decent number, by the way, 25,000 copies that will spit out a specific number of the author, what it would take for the author to earn that back. And there's a specific number there. And if you're within 10 to 25% of that number, you should be pretty good. So this all sounds like mystic mumbo jumbo, especially to many of us who don't do math. Um, I actually like numbers and I'm pretty good with numbers and publishing numbers are not really run on any sort of concrete information. It's a lot of guesswork. Um, but the way we come up with advanced numbers is two factors. And I hate to say it, but it's true. Hype will drive up the price of the advance quite significantly. If I had a book come in and the agent said, look, we already have two or three houses interested in this. One's already put in an offer. I'm going to set a closing date, um, you know, and I'm going to set the floor at $25,000. And then that's going to start something and that's going to drive up the advance of the book, depending on how much the house wants it. Um, and there's always that fine line. And there's a, when you're trying to make an offer on a book, at least for me, I, there was a lot of running back and forth between my desk and the publisher's office, which depending on what year I was working was either too flow me or too flow fours above me. And there was a lot of running up and down these stairs being like, this is what the agent said. Can we find more room in our PNL to offer them more money? Or maybe we can offer them a bonus, or maybe we can say, you know, we'll offer you more money if we can have more sub rights. You know, there's, a, this is where the negotiation does come in. But as far as determining what a book is worth, that is really mystic guesswork. And I wish I could say that we can look at something and say that and put a dollar amount on it and say, this is the actual market value of the book. We can't do that. We, it's just not built into publishing itself. That's really interesting because a few of the places that I've worked have had different systems and I'm sure that all publishers have different systems. They vary, Um, you know, part of one of the places that I worked, I believe had, you know, various imprints and each, imprint had a budget and the budget had to cover the entire season's catalog. So the whole year had to be, you know, you had X amount of money, you can spend it however you want, but you need to have X amount of books and you have X amount of money and, you know, and that's it. And you're not going to get any more money beyond what your budget was to spread throughout the year. So 
well, I think each editor size. had to determine. Right. I mean, this is this was a smaller house, and so it was much easier to say, you know, this is the exact size of our catalog. This is our exact budget for this imprint. You know, it was a much smaller place, and so and that was up to each individual hear. editor. Right. And this is often when you hear, oh, we can't acquire this book because there's another similar title on our list. Mm-hmm. A lot of editors have that sort of budget talk with their publishers. I mean, it does depend on the imprint, obviously, and it does depend on the house. I used to hear things about a particular Big Five house that didn't even do P&Ls unless the offer was above $100,000. Otherwise, it's just free money. Yeah, I know. And I was like, God, I have to make a P&L for anything that was every last deal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anything that was really $25,000 and up. I mean, we made a P&L for every deal that we made, but you know, anything kind of under $25,000, I could just sort of fudge the numbers and kind of like, um, but you know, some houses I've heard that anything under a hundred thousand dollars wasn't worth making a P&L for. It does depend on the house. Um, but again, the way we all make these calculations differs and Mm -hmm. that's why the the range of the advance varies so wildly and you know we can also even get more money if we get you know for example a YA children's has they often go hand in hand with the library markets uh it's a big section of the market that trade consumers don't see but if you are looking to acquire a YA title and your library marketing person says, look, this has a lot of potential for awards, or we can get it into book fairs, or we can do this, then the size of you have more wiggle room to go up mm-hmm. on your advance. So there's so many factors in there, which is why you can never say, what's why you can never look at a book and be like, this is going to be worth X amount of dollars. Just there's mm-hmm. just way too many factors in play to give anyone a concrete number like that yeah it's really there's just so much that goes into it and it's so much is unknowable and you can only make your best guess and just hope that you know you turn it turns out right yeah and you hope that, <laughs> that you your roll of the dice mistake. is gonna <laughs> yeah yeah so that's kind of the general bit about advances which are all paid against royalties which brings us to royalties. If you are lucky enough to earn out your advance, and according to an article in the New York Times, only 7 out of 10, uh, or rather 7 out of 10 do not earn out their advance, so that's only 3 out of every 10 that earn out their advance, which I actually think that sounds a little high. (laughs) I think it's probably a little bit lower than that, actually, for people who earn out. Um, If you are one of the lucky few who earn out your advance, you're going to start earning royalties. And at that point, it matters what your royalties are. There are some general standards across the industry, but royalties are a thing that is constantly... The royalties are constantly changing. They're constantly negotiating, and and there's a lot of, um, you know, pushback around royalties. Of course, the higher your royalty, the quicker you will earn out your advance. Mm -hmm. So higher royalty rates are better than lower royalty rates. Um, You know, the royalty rates, again, we mentioned briefly, e-books are a real... um, hot spot in the industry. Those are constantly being debated and people are trying to figure out, you know, what exactly they're worth. And so royalties can be a complicated thing. 
In general, you'll have two situations. You'll either have a flat royalty, one percentage amount that will go against every single book sold, no matter if you sell five books or 500,000 books, one flat royalty rate. Then there are what is called tiered royalties, which is usually a set of three percentages that go up according to escalators, which is the number of books that you've sold. So the standard tiered royalties in publishing are 10%, 12.5%, and 15%. Of list for... price on hardcover. Mm-hmm. Well, hardcover can go up to 20%. It can. On some books. Um, but <laughs> standard for hardcover yes, is generally standard. up to 15 You'll see yep. contract language that says something similar to 10% of list price to first 5,000 copies sold. Uh, twelve point five percent, five for... to ten thousand, and or however many, and then fifteen percent thereafter. Fifteen percent thereafter, mm-hmm. and that and that you know will be the last one. You'll get fifteen thousand percent on every book from there on out. So those are the three standard ones. Sometimes they can be lower. I've seen seven percent. Um, you know, I've seen a whole range of things. They can be a different combination. I've seen you know, ten, fifteen, twenty. I've seen. You know, they're, they're all different combinations. But the general point of it is that you start out at the lower royalty rate and then you're rewarded as you hit different sales markers. So as your sales go up, you're rewarded with a higher royalty rate. And again, a higher royalty rate is better because you earn more money, you earn out your advance faster. It's just good news all around for the author. And I'm going to explain a little bit in, in publishing, obviously I'm going to talk about standard. It's often broken out, not just by sales threshold, but by format. So if you're a hardcover publishing hardcover, initially you'll see that 10, 12.5, 15 breakdown. If you are published in trade paperback, now we did talk about formats in a previous Mm -hmm. episode about, I believe it was the either production or publication and beyond. Trade paperback is 7.5 flat, traditionally. You do sometimes see escalation in trade paperback, but not always. A lot of the time, trade paperback is just 7.5% flat. That's generally the publisher's standard contract. Boilerplates with agencies may differ, of course, but you'll see 7.5%. Mass market has a different royalty rate as well. It's actually generally anywhere between 6 and 7% of list price. So it does break down. And I'm going to use a concrete example again, and forgive my math if I make errors. So you have a book, we'll say you sold it for 10,000 copies, and it's being published in hardcover initially. So you have an advance for $10,000, and the list price, now this is the price for example, Barnes and Noble is going to sell your book at is going to be $25. So and the royalty rate on the first 10,000 copies of your book sold is going to be $2.50. Say you're good and say your book does well enough and you've sold that first 5,000 copies, the next 5,000 copies will then be sold at 12.5% of $25 and then 15% of $25. So you do see an escalation. You do see an incremental increase in the amount of books sold. So that's hardcover. Generally, books that are initially published in hardcover also get a trade paperback version. 
So when the trade paperback version comes out, you'll see 7.5% of the list price of that title. If, for example, the list price is 15% of that, or $15, you'll see 7.5% of every copy of your trade paperback sold. So there are multiple ways of getting royalties on your books, depending on what format it's published in, if it gets a trade paperback, if it gets a mass market. So don't think that you know, it lives and dies on the first print run of your book. There's, you know, further print runs and different formats of your book to be had. So there's a lot of money coming in bits and pieces throughout your entire publishing career. It's not all going to be upfront, but you know, so there's, I'm going to, and, and in the show notes of this episode, I'll, I'll try and give a concrete example, uh, with with numbers that y'all can see as opposed to me just trying to tell them to you slightly drunk on champagne. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a really bad Asian, you guys. I just can't do math to save my life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Mm. Yeah. Well, royalties are also just... I mean, inexplicable. This is, I mean, this is, this is royalties to the extent that the general industry professional understands them. The calculation of royalties and the, you know, compilation of royalty statements and deciphering those royalty statements, none of them, no two royalty statements ever look alike. All the information is found in different areas and different places. And some people are, some publishers are much more forthcoming with their numbers and others are very vague about them. Yeah. It's a whole thing. It's not standardized (laughs) across the industry, which again, I think is kind of stupid, but whatever we can, we can, Mm. we can have an airing of grievances about publishing if we really want. (laughs) Because I've got plenty. I don't think we can. I don't think we can. I, perhaps anonymously, yeah. we'll get in some uh, some voice altering machines and just get really liquored up, and then perhaps we could. But no, we love the industry. We do. I do. Yeah, I have grievances. I mean, but, you, know. you know, it's like anything. You you love it, but there are some things that can be fixed. It is a little bonkers. Mm. It is a little, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah, royalties. The standard ebook royalty right now is 25% of net profit received. Yes, yes. Um, Royalties are almost always on net, they're never, ever on gross. Well, Um, ebook? No, because like most big five publishers, it's going to be list price. It's going to be list price. It doesn't, so because the publisher, and I'm going to, again, we're going to try and break this down. I'll try and break it down a little bit further in the post itself and not just telling it to you, but a publisher along the way to when a book gets sold, a book gets marked up, you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. a publisher will sell 6,000 copies to Barnes and Noble for, we'll say $9 per book. But Barnes and Noble will sell that to the customer at $25 per book. So most contract language for the big five will say whatever percent of list price. 
So that's why royalty statements can get quite complicated is because if your list price varies, if there's a discount, discounts are kind of weird. Amazon's kind of weird because Amazon uses books as loss leaders, etc. But it's going to be list price. It's not going to be net net received. That is ebook because ebook now, for the most part, is an agency pricing model Mm -hmm. as opposed to a wholesale model, which is what prints print is done on. So Mm -hmm. I I will say that I still see contracts for net receipts for print books. I do. I I, I know that they exist, but for the big five net received for print is not at all common. The big Mm -hmm. five, the standards are what going to be what I've told you for hardcover. It's going to be 10, 12.5 and 15% for hardcover of list price. 7.5% 7.5% of list price for trade paperback and mm-hmm. 6 to 7% depending on you know of list price for mass market. So that's the big 5, that's what you will see. Um the net's receipt the net received is ebook because obviously you're not selling physical units of an ebook. You know, you're mm-hmm. you're basically selling licenses more or less. So in the agency model, as opposed to the wholesale model, the publisher and the retailer split the profits of the book. So in this instance, as opposed to the publisher giving you you know, 10% of the list price that the retailer is going to sell it to you for, the publisher, it's generally, I think, 30 and 70. I think that's the general split. Like, the publisher receives... of the profits of the sale of a book. So if you sell a book for $9.99, we'll round it up to $10. The publisher will receive $7 profit on that book. And then 25% of that $7 is going to you. So the calculation Mm -hmm. is done differently um, as opposed to print, which, you know, even though the publisher actually only makes $9 per book when they sell it to Barnes and Noble, they're still going to give you more money because Barnes and Noble is going to sell it at $25 a book. So that's Mm -hmm. the difference between print and E. That is very true. So we've done advances, we've done royalties, and there are a few other things that kind of get lumped under our sort of general mercenary cold hard cash topic um, that are a bit, you know, they're kind of outliers or unique situations, but I wanted to bring them up because if you're a writer, you might come across one of these situations and it has to do with money and that's what we're going to talk about. So one of them is working for hire or on assignment. So this is This can be for a number of things. This is when a publisher contacts you to write the book. You're you're given an assignment, basically. The publisher says, we want you to write this. Usually, that is done for a flat fee, a one-time amount of money. Sometimes it's still in splits, so you might still get it split up, but it's a single chunk of money that is not against royalties, Um, so, you know, that's it. You'll get paid the fee and that will be the end. That can be for things like ghostwriting. If you're going to write, you know, the next Babysitter's Club book or, you know, whatever, what are some other ghostwritten franchises or, or like if you're writing a celebrity memoir, if you're a ghostwriter for a celebrity, you know, they get Mm -hmm. paid actually pretty substantial fees, especially if you're good. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can make a lot of money ghostwriting. Um, it can be a legitimate thing. Or sometimes, too, like a publisher will have like a set of books. Like, you know, if the publisher's name is, I'm staring at my radiator right now, so we're going to call it Radiator Publishing. <laughs> and Radiator Publishing has a collection of books about you know, all the radiators ever made in the country. So from 1804 to 2016, I have no idea if radiators were invented in 1804. I'm just making up things right now. <laughs> but they, if if they have like a, a house line that is, you know, unique to that publisher that the publisher wants to retain proprietary rights to, you're not coming up with this concept. You're not, you know, for example, the person who originated Nas- this. National Geographic. Thank you. Used to, My yeah. radiator example was horrific, <laughs> but let's use something from real life. National Geographic I'm, has their I'm own drinking line vodka. of books. And they retain the copyright to their books. You can write for National Geographic books. I don't actually know if they're still in print, but I owned a lot of these when I was a kid, which is why they're the they're the example that comes to me. National Geographic, um, they will own the copyright to your book, so you will be a hired writer for them. They This is actually called IP, intellectual property. The publisher will come up with them. And some books are like this. Um I'm not going to name specific examples, but I know plenty of of ideas that were thought of in the publishing house. The publisher thought, said, hey, I would like a book about a bunch of girls in middle school talking about puberty. I don't know. This is an example that I have. Um, So the the idea actually originated with the publisher. Then they will go out and find a writer to write it. This is called IP projects. Certain publishers will have dedicated imprints or or a specific editor that works with IP penguin I know penguin does an imprint of penguin does so you know that's what IP is and then there's something called book packaging this is what Kelly was mentioning like sweet valley high um which I use actually my old boss used to be the fa- was the founder of of alloy or at that point it was called something else, but what eventually became Alloy, this book packaging company. Now, to explain what book packaging is, it's kind of similar to IP. This It's a separate company that comes up with these intellectual property ideas, or you can sell an idea to a packager. Um, Sweet Valley High, Babysitter's Club, Gossip Girl, Pretty Little Liars, these are all packaged books. So someone else came up, the packaging house came up with the idea, and then they found the writers to write for them. Now, the advantage of writing for a packager is generally, this is a close collaboration between the writer and the editor, and usually you'll get an outline and say, this is the story you need to write, you know, give us the manuscript. IP at a publishing house can be a little bit different. They just said, here's the idea, write the book, come up with whatever you want. Um, so it can be very open-ended like that, or it can be very strict. Um, so that all depends. But in those cases, because the idea did not originate from you, you do not hold the copyright. You get paid a fee. You're paid a fee to write the words. Exactly. And there's no royalties associated with that. That's, you know, a one-time flat fee. That's the end. And it's an invisible one because, again, the po- the copyright doesn't belong to you. But if you're a very well-respected ghostwriter, as we said, you can actually make a, a large amount of money doing that kind of work. You can get a lot of money doing it. And, and there are 
Definitely steady publishers. Work. <laughs> exactly. That's what I was going to say is if you can, you know, get your foot in the door of the ghostwriting or um, work for hire sort of world, once a publisher or a packager has worked with you on something and they get a feel for what it is that you do and what it is that you do well, they're going to want to work. I mean, you always want to go to the known entity rather than the unknown. So they'll want to continue working with you. They'll continue to throw you projects and, you know, you can really make um, a decent living doing ghostwriting if that's something that you're interested in. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I wanted to talk about is kill fees. Kill fees are rare, but they do happen. And so I wanted to bring them up. So we talked earlier about advances and in general, your advance is non-refundable. If you meet all your contractual obligations, you know, and your book just doesn't sell well and you don't earn any royalties, the publisher doesn't get to ask for that money back. That's yours to keep up front. You earned it. The end. There are some situations where if you don't meet your contractual obligations, then the publisher will require that you pay the advance back. If, for example, they contract you, they contract you to write a book, you sign your deal and you get your signature payment, and then you just never turn in your manuscript... (laughs) <laughs> that that's a breach of contract that is you are not fulfilling your contractual obligations and you will need to pay your advance back so you can't just skip out of town with your signing advance and then you know never never say anything about it again the publisher will want that money back they can sue you <laughs> mm-hmm. so but most of the time that doesn't happen because you're a good responsible person who is going to fulfill your end of the bargain and so you would get to keep your advance There are other situations where something goes wrong and a publisher will give you a kill fee. Kill fees are more common in magazine printing or like newspaper. Um, That's kind of where you'll find them the most, but you will find them in traditional book publishing. In a magazine or a newspaper, it's the kind of thing where you know, you were writing this article and then something else happened and your space got bumped or they cut the pages down by a certain number of, t- of pages and there's no more room for your article. And it or got someone cut. got in before you on a particular topic and it's either competitive, mm-hmm. then they want to kill your article because it's competitive, that kind of thing. Right. But it's, but it's still, you know, you did the work that you were supposed to do and it's not your fault that the circumstances have changed and that the publisher isn't going to go with it anymore. In that case, they're going to compensate you for your time and your effort. They're going to give you a kill fee. It's usually a percentage of what you were originally going to be paid for the work. And that's kind of how it works in, in magazine and periodical life in book publishing. It can happen for slightly different reasons. Um, Sometimes this will happen if you have a series, for example, or not even a series, if you just have a multiple book contract. If you have like a three book contract and you did book one and you did book two and now you're working on book three, but book one and book two didn't sell well. Book one didn't sell well and book two is really kind of abysmal and it it really is not worth it to the publisher unfortunately to publish book three (laughs) but but you haven't done anything wrong you're turning in your book you're writing the book you're doing everything that you're supposed to do 
So they can't just, you know, cancel the contract and say that you're in breach and call the whole thing off. They have to give you something. If they decide not to go forward and publish that book three because they say, look, here's your sales. They're non-existent. It is going to cost us more money to publish this book than it's worth. We can't afford to do that. We've got to cut you loose. We're not going to publish this third book that's contracted. They'll give you a kill fee because you're working on this book. You haven't done anything wrong. This is not your fault, and you need to be compensated for your time and your effort. It can also be something where an imprint is shutting down. Um, that doesn't always happen. Sometimes there's no money when an imprint shuts down, so there's no money for kill fees. Um, they're really rare. They they do not often happen. Yeah, I can't but think of a single instance where a kill fee has had to come I know in. of two. I know of two. In my, in my like, decade of publishing, I know of two kill fees. Um, and so there, it's really rare, but it does happen. Um, you know, and again, I mean, it sucks. It sucks for sure. But it's, again, it's not your fault there. It's like circumstances beyond your control. There's nothing that you could do. And it's the publisher compensating you for your time and effort. Um, because you know, it would be really egregious of them to just cut you loose with nothing. Well, because they would be in breach of contract if they didn't publish your third contracted book. So the kill fee is essentially, hey, we don't want to fulfill our obligation, so here is, you know, our monetary compensation for that. So that's essentially what the kill fees are for. You know, as Kelly Mm -hmm. said, they're extremely rare. um, Mm -hmm. And you would get your rights back, And you would get your rights back. Yeah, they wouldn't keep your rights and then just not publish them so (laughs) you'd get your rights back you'd get a kill fee um so yeah so kind of a bummer note to end on but (laughs) i did want to include it in our mercenary chat because i i do know of instances where it has happened and um you know it is i mean so 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 rare so we discussed kill fees is there Anything else you want to talk about in terms of royalties or money? (sighs) I think that just about covers all of it from a publishing 201 perspective, at least. All right. Well, if you guys have any further questions, Kelly and I will be doing a Reddit Ask Me Anything on Monday, January 25th. So bring all of your questions you guys have about contracts, royalties, querying, submissions, any any of the previous topics that we've covered on this podcast and any other topics that or any other questions that you might have that you think we could have an answer for you. So again, that's Reddit's Ask Me Anything on Monday, January 25th. I'll put a reminder in in those show notes, but I'll also we'll we'll tweet about it if you guys want, you know. <laughs> so that's coming up. Anyway, what are you reading? I am actually, I haven't read anything so far this year in 2016. I, if I'm completely honest, I haven't read anything since before Christmas. So that's about three weeks of no reading, which is terrifying, actually, now that I say it out loud. Um, also but kind I, of refreshing, don't you think? <laughs> it has been. Well, what, it, what it's done is I'm really excited to get back to it now. Mm, mm. Um, it's been a really nice break. I had the holidays going on, and then I was... Uh, very immersed in other media, which I will talk about at length in our (laughs) other media section of the podcast. So I think you'll all understand why I haven't been reading books lately. Um, But 
I'm really excited to get back to it. I just bought myself a brand new Kindle Voyage, which arrived today, which was my treat to myself. I've been reading all my library books on my phone for the last year, which has been agonizing. I'm really excited to uh, get a shiny, sleek new e-writer, e-writer, e-reader. I don't know, guys. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure you'll hear in the bloopers later, but we had some technical difficulties mm. and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Anyway. I'm very excited about it. It's beautiful, and I can't wait to use it. I do have a Kindle Touch, but the lag time on it is really atrocious. I can't handle it anymore. It's like I'll press to turn the page and then sit there. <laughs> sit there and then eventually the page will turn but it won't turn to the next page it will turn like four pages ahead or something it's it's agonizing to use that thing so I've been reading on my phone for the last year which was just not sustainable for the long term so I have a new Kindle I'm very excited to download a bunch of stuff and uh, start reading but I haven't read anything recently what about you? Yeah I didn't read it all over my break either. Um, and I intended to thinking, you know, I had my entire plane ride out to California to see my family. But when I was home, you know, we went to Death Valley and Las Vegas as like a family trip. And so a lot of traveling just at home. And while I was, we were in Vegas, we saw Cirque du Soleil. Um, so it was a lot of fun, but not a lot of reading got done, but I did start on the plane Walk on Earth a Stranger by Ray Carson, uh, which I did buy several months ago. just never got around to reading at that time. So I did start that, which I'm enjoying. I am also reading The Witches. Uh, I think it, the full title is The Witches, Salem, 1692. It's a long non work of narrative nonfiction about the Salem witch trials. And it's... Really, really, really good. The author is Stacy Schiff. She's the Pulitzer Prize winning author of the biography of Cleopatra, which is also on my to be read list. She's a fantastic writer. Um, she's, it, it's very, very engaging. Like the, it has this, the witches has a whole cast of characters, a dramatis personae in the beginning that's really funny. Um, and she writes in a very literary manner. The thing is, this book is like a thousand pages long, <laughs> so it's taking me forever to finish this book. Uh, and and as we, both Kelly and I, mentioned several podcasts ago, that we read very quickly, both of us, and the fact that it's taking me like a whole month to read this book is kind of killing me. Um, but yesterday, since we were recording this on the 6th of January, uh, two pub crawl alumni had books published which is Truth Witch by Susan Dennard and Passenger by Alexander Bracken. I did buy... Hooray! Yay! I did buy both of those, and I did start Passenger yesterday. So those are what I'm reading in print. Um, and I'm also rereading Bridget Jones's Diary at the gym on audio. Wow, I haven't read that in years. Yeah, I, I hadn't either, and... Um, I found the, there are actually two audio versions on Audible, and um, I bought the one narrated by Imogen Church because she sounds more like Bridget than the other narrator who sounded like a 65-year-old woman. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was like, this doesn't sound like a 30-something. Um, it's, it's funny. I'd forgotten exactly how funny it was. I also forgot that Bridget worked in publishing. <laughs> oh, really? I thought 
thought she was a reporter. That's later in the book. But when the job oh. starts, she is working in publishing, and apparently in editorial. But she never actually talks about her job. Um, <laughs> just how many cigarettes? Just smoke. how many cigarette smokes? How many calorie? How many calories eaten? Um, the audio version is British. The the British ver- the UK version. So certain things it kind of took me a while because she records her weight in stone. So she's mm-hmm. like nine stone, one pound, which I have no idea. I, I actually looked it up later. Nine stone, one stone is 14 pounds, I think. So like nine stone, one pound, whatever. But there's that. Um, and then like later on, she records how many instant lottery tickets that she buys. But in the <laughs> U.S. version, it just says lotto tickets. And But when she narrates it, she says instants. And it took me a really long time before I realized, oh, she means lottery tickets. <laughs> So there's like small kind of language differences that the my my version, which was the print U.S. version, is slightly different from the U.K. version. So I, I'm really enjoying that. It's also very funny, uh, mm-hmm. very '90s. It's very dated now because she talks about the answering machine, or they call it the answer phone. Um, mm-hmm. You know, recording shows. You know, like on VCR. They don't have DVR, yep. it's VCR. <laughs> so it's very, very dated in that respect, but it's still very, very, very funny. So that that's quite enjoyable when I'm at the gym to have, have Bridget just talk to me about all of her neuroses. <laughs> so that's what I'm reading. <laughs> Excellent. And so now let's get let's get to this other media that the other media. that has been preventing you from reading books. <laughs> Okay, okay. So, up until very recently, I want to say it was like December 17th is when this whole ordeal started. So, up until very, very recently, I had never seen Star Wars. (laughs) Now, that isn't entirely 100% accurate. So, when the original trilogy was out in theaters again in the 90s, I went to see one of them in theaters with friends and just, I don't, I don't, I can't remember who I went to see it with, but I know I didn't pay attention, which leads me to think that I probably went in a group of people that included my boyfriend and I probably just made out with them the whole time. I can't remember, and I I didn't look it up, so I don't know exactly which year it came out. It was 1997. Okay, well, then that narrows down the boyfriend. (laughs) Because it was the 20th anniversary, and it first came out in 1977. So, Kelly hadn't seen it, but I'm a huge Star Wars fan, guys. Yes, yes. And and JJ has been answering my questions and guiding me <laughs> along. She's she's been my guide uh, in some ways throughout this process. But so so I had seen like quote unquote scene sat in the movie theater during the showing of one of the original. I don't know which one it is. I had thought that it was Empire Strikes Back, but having just finally watched Empire Strikes Back, I don't think it was that one anymore. I think it might have been Return of the Jedi. Who even knows? <laughs> I, not Certainly not me. So, But I paid money to go see it at some point. <laughs> and then um, Phantom Menace was on in the background at my friend Mike's house one time when a whole bunch of us were hanging out in his kitchen 
And so that was like on in the background. And I remember little bits and pieces of that one. Uh, but again, we were just hanging out talking and not actually watching the movie. And so that was kind of like the sum total of my actual viewing of Star Wars. Now I knew a significant amount about Star Wars. I mean, significant is, you know, um, all relative, but you know, for six movies that I'd never watched, I knew a significant amount of information because I am alive in America (laughs) (laughs) And, and you just kind of absorb all that pop culture by osmosis. So, you know, there were no, all the big, you know, things and turns and reveals and everything I had already known ahead of time. My husband, David, was getting really excited about The Force Awakens, and he really wanted to rewatch all of the movies before going to see it, because he hadn't really seen them since he was younger. He wanted to rewatch them, and I was like, well, I've actually never seen those. And then it became like a mission. He was like, you have to see <laughs> these movies. And so we sat down and we watched all six of them in uh, the order in which they were released, Uh, So we watched the original trilogy first and then the prequels. I live tweeted the whole thing at hashtag Padawan Kelly. Uh, There were a few instances where the hashtag got screwed up to Pad Kelly or Padawan instead of Padawan because I was drinking and (laughs) twittering on my phone and it wasn't really working so well. Uh, But most of them are at hashtag Padawan Kelly. I don't know whether or not they're (laughs) entertaining, but that was my live tweet of all six movies. And then we saw The Force Awakens in theaters um, on New Year's Eve, actually. And so I have been experiencing the entire Star Wars. Well, I mean, certainly not none of the extended universe or or other uh, media, which I gather there's quite a lot of. So none of that stuff. But the seven movies I have seen, I did it, you know, over the course of um, about a week and a half or two weeks, I think. Uh, watched them all. We own them all now. We went out and bought them so that we could do this. And um, yeah, it was an experience and it was wonderful. And I have to say, I did not expect to like them. You know, I mean, they're old and... Um, See, I'm sort of surprised. I had a lot of... Cause I didn't. They're so yeah. mythic, and they're very archetypal, and, and they're just sort of that kind of, like, real mythic classic feel that I kind of thought, without thinking about it, that you would like them. Well, yeah, I mean, well, this is just this is just my expectations going in, but I, I think I thought, you know, I know what happens more or less. I know the basic beats of the story. I know who betrays who and who's related to who and who's in love with who. And I knew I was keeping while I was live tweeting, like a running tally of every time a famous line came up (laughs) because these movies are quoted and referenced in so many other places that it's like, I know these famous quotes line, like word for word, even though I've never seen this movie. So every time one would come up, I'd get really excited. Um, so I felt kind of like I'd seen them without seeing them, you know? So I was like, well, seeing these movies is just a formality. And I was really just kind of like, oh, I'll do it for fun and it'll be whatever. Um, so I was like, well, you know, at best, maybe they'll be kind of entertaining. And I didn't really go into it expecting much of anything. Listener, I loved them. <laughs> <laughs> the first three, anyway. Um, you mean episodes four, five, and six. Yeah, yeah, that is still not that. That's going to take me a while to 
set all those straight in my head. But four, five, and six, the original movies, um, I loved them. And I could go on at length about all the reasons why I love them, but that is not what this podcast is about. And so I will, uh, I will curb myself in that way. And I certainly don't want to spoil anything about the new one. So, um, I will just leave it at, it was wonderful. The whole experience, even the movies that I didn't enjoy when it came to the prequels or episodes one, two, three, we do not speak Um, of those. I I mean, there were, there were moments for me or glimmers of hope that were never realized, I guess. Yeah, those movies Um, are all potential and no fulfillment. (laughs) And yeah, no, but the original ones, I real I mean, I really did love them. And I have to say that Leia is such a fantastic character. And if you had asked me if I would have fallen in love with her and thought that she was as well-written as it turns out that she is, if you'd asked me that before I'd seen these movies, there's no amount of money, you know, that I would have lost everything that I own because I just thought there was no way it was from the seventies. It was, you know, the slave bikini and the whole, like there was no way that she was going to be a character of substance. There was no way that she was going to be, you know, anything other than a helpless damsel in distress who was there to look pretty. And I was so wrong about that. And that is so exciting and gratifying and fantastic. And I just, I just, you know, if, if nothing else, the watching those movies was about defying all my expectations of the character of Leia. And it was an incredible experience. And I wish I could like go back and dismantle all that again, because (laughs) it was so great. And she is so great. And I love her. And I really love the force awakens too, but I'm like very afraid to say anything about it. Although who hasn't seen this movie by this point? I mean, it's like, I know, I know (laughs) box office records. And I mean, I I mean, I've seen it three times already. So you guys, I want to go again. I want, want to go again. But that, so that so is one of the things that I was doing was immersing myself in Star Wars. So that was incredible. And then as soon as I wrapped up Star Wars, I fell into a video game called Life is Strange. So I've talked on here a little bit about dipping my toe in the water of gaming. Um, I am not a gamer. People who are, um, serious video game players would laugh at me if I ever tried to count myself among their company, but I do enjoy video games, uh, to a certain extent. I like playing them. I like watching other people play them. I heard wonderful things about Life is Strange from just about everyone. It has made so many best of 2015 game lists. It is available on multiple platforms immediately, which normally if there's like an indie game that comes out on PC, you have to wait for it to become available on other platforms. Um, but it was available right away. It released episodically. There's five episodes that released like a month apart, starting back in September, I think. And I waited until the whole thing was out to play it because I know myself and (laughs) I can't, like, I'm not a patient person. In general, it is a story about a high school girl named Max who discovers that she has the ability to rewind time and make different choices. Mm. And it is a game that heavily features player choice. I've played a few games before where there's like a choice component, but it doesn't 
really impact gameplay. Like, it kind of will, you know? Like, you can make people angry or or happy or, you know, affect your relationship points with other characters based on the choices that you make. But it doesn't really have a ton of plot relevance or significance. Um, This game is almost entirely choice-based. It's almost like a choose-your-own-adventure book in game form. It is not a game where you're fighting or battling. There are some puzzles and some things to figure out, but really, in general, you're talking to people, and in your conversations with people, you have to choose your conversation lines. You choose what your character is going to say, and it drastically, drastically impacts the game. So that there are so many different outcomes and things that could happen. And it's not just in the immediate moment, you know, you say something and the character that you're speaking with reacts. It has repercussions later, four episodes down the road, that thing comes back and has a significant impact on the plot. So you're really creating the story as you go. It's incredible. The graphics are beautiful. The music is gorgeous. The one thing I didn't know about it is how very dark (laughs) it is. So if you're interested and you want to play, and you should play, because there are so many great things about it. Like I said, it's beautiful. It is female-centric. Most of the characters are um, women or girls. It's about their relationships with each other. Um, There are... I mean, I don't want to start spoiling stuff, so I'll stop there. But there's a lot of things that are really wonderful about it. It's very dark. If you watch the trailer, you'll say to yourself, oh, this looks like gritty and dark. And that's what I said to myself. But I have sobbed on the couch <laughs> playing this video game. And last night, I'm, I'm, I'm at the end. I'm on the final episode. I'm on episode five. And I probably only have like 20 minutes of gameplay left. I'm too scared to finish playing. <laughs> I, I play at night when my daughter goes to bed and my husband had been sitting on the couch beside me, watching me and hanging out with me while I play. And it got too dark for him and he bailed. So now when I play wow, too dark for David, it's too dark for David. And so he bailed on me. And so now I have to play it alone and I just like I'm I really I told myself I have to wait until this weekend and then when my daughter is napping I'll open all the windows and it'll be like full daylight (laughs) and I'll okay now I'm super curious it is dark and it is disturbing and there are twists that genuinely shocked me it it like but it's great like it is so so wonderful I cannot say enough good things about it um, and I am going to finish it. I just need to feel really safe when I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sold me like more than anything. Cause you're like, Oh, it's really beautiful. And the character choice, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, it's really dark. And I'm like, sold. <laughs> it's really dark. Like I knew, like you want, you'll watch the trailer and, and the trailer gives a good general impression of like the first episode. And there are some things in there where you're like, Whoa, that's, that's dark. Okay. This is going to be intense. And, um, and it, I mean, and, and they're teenage characters and they speak like teenagers, which is to say there's a lot of swearing and a lot of, um, awkward stuff. Like it's, and people have pointed that out as like, it's like, Oh, they sound so awkward, but I think they sound awkward in a really authentic way. Like this is the way that teenage girls speak. 
And there's a lot of like posturing and a lot of like intensity. And it's like when you have your best friend and it's like the most important person in the world and that relationship just supersedes everything. And you would go back in time and do whatever you had to do, you know, to protect that relationship and prioritize it. And, you know, and then it just spins out from there and it just, yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's, see, like if anybody out there has played it and you got to the end of, um, episode four or no, end of episode three and you saw that big reveal and then you got to the beginning of episode four and you got to that major choice that you have to make. I, I, like, I literally put down the controller and I was like, are you shitting me right now? <laughs> is this really <laughs> happening? This is a choice that I have to make in this game. It is dark. Um, but really excellent. And so those are the things that I've been immersed in and why I haven't been reading quite so much, but definitely been, uh, surrounding myself with stories of other kinds. Well, you have definitely convinced me to play Life is Strange yes. now. Um, I am not a gamer, so... I'm like missing that one part of my brain that just finds games interesting or engaging. I sometimes will watch my partner play video games um, if they are RPGs. So uh, any like the Uncharted games, which I really, really love watching them play because they're basically they're Indiana Jones in game form. Uh-huh. And they're fantastic. I love those. Um, I He had... This was a while ago when they had come out, but The Last of Us, really excellent game, really beautiful story. But, you know, the gameplay aspect of it just bores me. Like, I just don't care. I don't want to go and do this task to get to the story. But now I am intrigued, so uh, <laughs> I'll definitely start playing. you got to stick with it because episodes one and two are like, yeah, there's some dark stuff, but it seems like you can handle it. It doesn't get really dark until like three, but four, you know five. me. I like some messed up shit. This is some messed up shit. This is some real life messed up shit. <laughs> yeah, I love that stuff. So, yeah. I'm, I'm, I think yeah, it hits, so I think it hits I a convinced. lot of your buttons. I think probably. I, I think there's a lot in it that you would like if you played. Um, but yeah, if you do play, let me know. So I will. <laughs> well, my other media consumed is pretty similar to yours. I, as we mentioned before, I'd watched Star Wars: The Force Awakens three times <laughs> over the holidays. Uh, yeah, we went opening weekend. Um, Mark and I were in Charleston. Our Christmas gift to each other was uh, like a vacation trip as opposed to like a gift that we would like give each other because both he and I were spending uh, the actual holidays apart. He went to see his family and I went to see mine and his family's in New Jersey and mine's California. So the weekend before we went to, to Charleston to have a really lovely, you know, romantic weekend, good food, charming town. We really loved, or I really loved Charleston. So, and I'd been three times already. So this was me showing him around uh, Charleston. And, um, so we, but we did see it while we were there. Um, and then I, I can't, okay. So Kelly says she had never seen Star Wars before, but I love Star Wars. I grew up watching them. Um, I always remember watching them kind of on TV, you know, like they're like on, on syndication. Some, some channel is playing them at any given point. So kind of like Kelly, I'd sort of seen them bits and pieces growing up. Um, but as I mentioned before, 
1997 was when they re-released the Star Wars, the original trilogy, in the movie theaters for the 20th anniversary, quote, special edition. This is when George Lucas had gone in the first time to tinker and move things around and, and edit things. Um, but I went, I was 11 when it came out. So I was like the prime Star Wars age. So I really just totally fell in love with this universe. I read not all, but I read a lot of the extended universe novels, which are now no longer canon, by the way. Mm. Um, yeah, they're, they're no longer canon. They've retconned that. So all the stuff that I read in the extended universe, well, I see echoes of it and I won't spoil anything for the, for people who either haven't read those books or haven't seen the force awakens, which again, who are you people? Um, but the, uh, some of the storylines and, and callbacks from the extended trilogy, from the extended universe, I can kind of see in the Force Awakens, but they are in fact going off in a totally different direction, which is fine. I don't, I don't mind um, that at all because the extended universe. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you two examples of the sorts of books that you would read in the extended universe. So you have pretty famously really excellent series of novels called the. Th- I think it starts with The Heir to the Empire by Timothy Zahn. And there's a series of three books. It's called The Thrawn Trilogy. These are excellent books. Uh, They take place post-Jedi, and they're about Luke, Han, and Leia, and this sort of repercussions of the fall of the Empire. They're really fantastic, really wonderful books. And then you have something like The Courtship of Princess Leia. which is the most cheesy book you can possibly think of. Um, this is a, this is kind of like nominally the romance novel where like, this is where Han and Leia finally like get together and they get married, but there's like this other guy and there's like a love triangle and then Han abducts her. It's, it's terrible by the way. It's a terrible book. I loved it when I was 12. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible, terrible book. Um, so those are kind of the, two sorts of things that you see in the extended universe. It's either very, very good or just crap. Um, so I'm kind of glad they're sort of jettisoning the whole extended universe because there's so much baggage there that I don't think they could have possibly gone forward with the new movie that way, which I'm fine with. Um, but I really love the force awakens. Um, after we saw it in Charleston, I saw it again the following Monday. And then when I went home, I saw it again on Christmas day with my family. Um, so I, that I really like, I have so many feelings, you guys, I have so many feelings. Um, 99% of them are good. I would say I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, there are one or two dissenting opinions about star Wars out uh, about the force awakens out there. I know some people loathed it for some bizarre reason. Really? Because I thought it was good. Like even just as a movie and then. I thought it was a very good Star Wars movie. Now, again, I have only just recently watched them, but I thought that it it fit well with what the original trilogy was about and spoke to those themes, and I, I thought it was excellent. <laughs> I, I did too, and I think a lot of the people who are upset about The Force Awakens, the most common complaint I hear is that it's not very original. Well, no shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> original trilogy isn't very original no. either. Um, and everyone's like, well, it's essentially 
the original trilogy remixed? And I said, yes, it is. But I think that's the smart move. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was... Here's the other thing. The first thing I liked about The Force Awakens, it was funny. It was the funny. The prequels are just doer and humorless. They're so humorless. And any attempt at humor falls horribly flat. We have Jar Jar Binks. We have... It's just... It's so awful. Um, But there are moments in The Force Awakens where I genuinely laughed. Like, a delighted laugh. Mm -hmm. Like, when BB-8 comes out and he has got that little thumbs up with the lighter. He's so cute. Or... Um, when C-3PO cock blocks <laughs> on Leia, which is so great. Like, there's, like, little moments like that that clearly, to me, said that the writers knew the characters of the original trilogy really well, mm-hmm. to write them really well. So I loved it. But a lot of people were upset. A lot of the complaints I've heard that it wasn't very original, which, it's a fair criticism, but unlike them, I it doesn't... I don't think it makes it a bad movie. Right. Um... And some of them are like, I, they were like, I don't think the characters from the original trilogy would do this and this. And kind of listening and or reading some of these articles, to me, it sounded like this movie wasn't what I wanted it to be. And therefore I don't like it, which meh, you know, like that's your problem. That's not the movie's problem. So, but I, I loved it. It kind of made me turn into an 11 year old again in the best way possible. I just want to live in this universe. I just want to talk about it all the time. I have all these feelings about Han Solo oh, and everyone. Oh. <laughs> I love Han. Han has always been my favorite character in the original trilogy, even above Leia. As much as I love Princess Leia, I really love me uh, a rogue with a heart of gold. Me too. And I, I knew I was going to love Han Solo going in. There was no question about that. <laughs> he is exactly my type of fictional dude. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He rings all of my bells. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's all the media that I've consumed, too. So, uh, have you worked on anything creative? Have I worked on anything creative? I... No, I don't think so. No. Yeah, me neither. Mine's all Star Wars focused. Yeah. Uh, you know what my next project is, Kelly, is to get you to watch Avatar The Last Airbender. Yeah, you and everybody else that I know. <laughs> I sound so glum about it. I'm like, oh, man. The thing is, people whose opinions I trust and whose taste I usually align with love it and believe that I will love it and have told me you will love this thing. And they're probably right. <laughs> like, I'll, I probably will love it. Um, I don't know what my, like, reluctance is. Because it's not a resistance. It's not like a, oh, no, I don't want to sort of a thing. It's just, I just feel like, ugh, I guess. Like, okay. Which is stupid, because I'm sure that if I do watch it, I will actually love it the way that everyone says that I will. And I will be so swept up in it and excited and enthusiastic about it that it will be ridiculous to me that I ever would have dragged my feet. But I I don't know. There's just... <laughs> I feel like I kind of want you to have the side podcast where I like where we just where we watch Avatar: The Last Airbender. <laughs> <laughs> I really one. I do think you would love it. 
uh, it is quite literally the best television show I've ever seen in my life. And I don't put out, put that out lightly. Um, it fulfills everything from beginning to end. And it has that same classic feel as Star Wars and Harry Potter. And in fact, involves a lot of those tropes. It is set in an Asian inspired setting, obviously. So all these characters are technically people of color. Um, and I, it, everything about it, it's extremely well researched. I love the characters. I think it's really funny. It has the best possible villain redemption arc. Um, it made me sob. I, cr- I cried my eyes out in, in a good way it, in, in the last like two or three episodes of, of Avatar. <laughs> so I like kind of want you to, I just, I just like need you to watch them so we can talk. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. I get that. That's how I feel about you and Orphan Black. And like, how can you not have seen this yet? Because there are so many conversations that we need to have. <laughs> I know. I, well, it's because I don't have Amazon I know, Prime. I know. That's the reason I, I haven't seen Orphan Black. I know. So many conversations we need to have JJ. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think you're probably right. I think if you and Mike ever ganged up on me, then I would be toast because the two of you would just, he is the other person who really needs me to watch that show. And frankly, if we ever did do a side podcast, he would have to be a co-host with us or else he would never speak to me again. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because he's been telling me this for years that I need to watch this show. Um, so maybe Maybe it'll happen. relative... I'm a relative latecomer to it myself. Like, I don't think I started watching Avatar until a couple of years ago. So I didn't watch it on Nickelodeon. I just, it was on Netflix and I was kind of bored and I just thought, hey, this is a show everyone else is, like, I was like you. Everyone told me I should watch it. I should like it. And initially I was resistant because I was a little skeptical of a Western animated show that drew on Eastern elements. Mm -hmm. But they do it all extremely well. And... It it blew my mind, and I just watched the first one, and I thought it was kind of funny, and then I watched the next one, and before I knew it, I had binged the whole thing. Now, are you talking specifically about Avatar, or like Avatar and, what is it, Legends of Korra? Is that? Legend of Korra. Yeah. Um, specifically Avatar. Avatar, from beginning, middle, and end, is perfect, and it does have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, Korra has a lot more flaws, but Korra is also, it's, it's more ambitious and smaller at the same time. Like Mm -hmm. if Avatar tells this mythic story of a chosen one or a reluctant chosen one, Korra is very different. And it's, it's sort of like if Avatar is like Harry Potter books one through three, Korra is like a YA series because the characters are a little bit older, um, and they deal with much different things and it's much more about Korra's personal journey than it is sort of about saving the world as you know it. Um, Korra does have a lot of flaws, but I think honestly the ending of Korra makes up for the first two seasons, which is really kind of slow. Um, and the second season, which is actually legitimately terrible, (laughs) but like the first one is good, and then the second one is terrible. Season three, though, completely blew everything out of the water and put Cora back into my good graces. And then the way it ended just, like, was so perfect, and I loved it, and I thought it was fantastic. So Cora has a lot more growing pains than Avatar, which really is, like, fully formed great. Huh. So, but I definitely start with Avatar. Okay. Mine? interested we'll see <laughs> if, if we have another podcast to tell you about we'll let you know <laughs> yeah 
And I All think right. that's kind of it for me anyway. That's what's been Yeah, that's it me. for me too. That's all for this week. Next week is going to be a slightly different episode of Pub Crawl. JJ has interviewed Beth Revis, who is the New York Times bestselling author of Across the Universe. Uh, they got together while they were both in town in Charlotte. Is that where you guys yep, recorded? In Charlotte. Yeah, and unfortunately, I was not there because I am all the way in cold Minnesota. So I'm looking <laughs> forward to that one as well. Beth, um, I believe, is going to be talking about revisions in general and her writing publishing journey. So um, that'll be something wonderful for us all to look forward to. Mm. As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about varying aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Instagram and Twitter. And if you want that hashtag for my Star Wars live tweet, it was again hashtag Padawan Kelly. <laughs> and you can follow me, JJ, at SJ Jones, that's S J A E J O N E S, on Twitter or my website at sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.